So if you haven't already, let's open your Bibles to the book of James, and uh, will you join me in prayer? Lord, we do love you and praise you, God, and we do uh, thank you for that time of worship, just to enter into your presence, to prepare us to receive your word, Lord. So would you speak to us today, God, through your word that's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, may it pierce deeply into our hearts as we look to it, God, for instruction and for encouragement today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we will be in this book of James for the next five weeks. Um, It's very interesting because we decided uh, that we would tack this little book, this powerful book on uh, the remainder of our time after we finished Hebrews a little early. And I just was kicking myself yesterday thinking, oh my goodness, like what were we thinking trying to pack this mighty powerful book into five weeks? Anybody who teaches this book divides the first chapter at least into two or three teachings. (laughs) So you could imagine my struggle this week as I was trying not to skim over any of this um, amazing um, uh, and powerful word in in uh, in this first chapter so um as i as i said uh really we could take three weeks in this chapter alone for sure but i am going to try to do my very best to hit on every uh point as well as I possibly can. Praise God, we have a Bible study to go with it, that you really can um, dig deep into this, because I feel like I want to do justice to this amazing book. But uh, as I said, uh, we have five weeks to go through this book, and, and, um, and I'm excited to teach through it, because which of us, as I said, doesn't want to mature more? And it's, as we will learn today, the Word of God is um, our mirror. As we look to the Word of God, we see um, how much further we need to go. We see, um, uh, you know, correction, as we'll see today. We see instruction, and, um, and we receive encouragement as well. So... Um, In this book, I'm just going to do a quickie overview real fast, and then we're going to get right to it. But in this book, we do see that James points out five marks to maturity. The five ways in which we as believers are growing and maturing and being perfected in our faith, we see... And they all start with a a letter P, so it's very easy for us to remember. In chapter 1, patience. Chapter 2, practices. Chapter 3, power. Chapter 4, peacemaking. And chapter 5, prayer. And all these wonderful P-letter powerful words here are marks of our Christian maturity. Patience, practices, power, peacemaking, and prayer. James, we know, is a half-brother of Jesus. He was born from Mary and Joseph. Um, But the interesting thing about James is he was not a believer while Jesus was 
on earth. It wasn't until Jesus resurrected from the dead and came back sometime during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, during that time, we're told, that James um, believed during that time. Um, And I imagine it was almost like an unveiling for James, like a light bulb moment. Like we have ours in the word. That's how it was for James as he sat and he listened and he heard and he watched and he grew up with Jesus. It all at that moment was unveiled to him. And everything that he wondered and everything that he questioned and everything that maybe he doubted came to life in that moment. So much so that James became um, the leader, the first leader of the church in Jerusalem. James was written about A.D. 46 to 48, and it was, if you didn't know, a little fun fact, the first New Testament book ever written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Before any of the Pauline epistles, the book of James was written. You see, they didn't have... Really, I mean, it was the beginning of the church, and they needed some formal type of instruction. So James, being the leader of the church there in Jerusalem, wrote this little book, this letter, as instructions not to um, one particular person, but to a group of people, to the church, which was at this time, we'll learn, scattered abroad in different countries, not just in Israel, but in Palestine and, and across the borders, the church was scattered because of the persecution after the death of Jesus. So this was the first book that was written. The people in the church, as I said, were afraid. They were scattered as a result of the persecution that um, was occurring. Uh, So James responds to the church and writes this letter of encouragement, really encouraging the people to put their faith into action. Thus, we get the title for our Bible study. So James responds to the church. He gives a much-needed instruction, much-needed encouragement during their time of trial and temptation. Um, He encourages them about faith and love and works and speech and being a peacemaker instead of a troublemaker and the importance of prayer in troublesome times. The key, though, to this book um, is spiritual maturity, and we find that key in our first chapter here, uh, in chapter 1, verse 4, four, excuse me, it says, verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Whenever we see a word repeated, especially in just one verse, that is our are a clue that we need to listen up. We know that repetition is the best teacher, right? So here, the word perfect is repeated twice. The word perfect is repeated twice because it means something very important. It means to make something completely free from faults or defects or to close to such Um, as close to such condition as possible. It means to be ideal. It means to be faultless, flawless, or to be complete. The word of God is that which makes us perfect, flawless, and complete. It instructs us. It corrects us. It confirms God's will to us. But when we're waiting on something... 
and becoming impatient, it becomes difficult to wait, and we can even grow weary in our wait. Therefore, patience is a necessary virtue and one that the Lord uses to perfect us, to make us as close to perfect as possible. No one likes to wait, but waiting teaches us so much about ourselves, doesn't it? I mean, really think about it. When we're waiting for something for a long period of time, what happens? It really reveals our heart, doesn't it? I mean, when we're waiting for a really long time, years and years, we really can grow weary while waiting and, and, and our heart is revealed. We become anxious, frustrated, more than weary. <laughs> we become angry at times while we wait. It really does reveal our heart, but it also reveals the Lord's heart. As we wait, we see the Lord's heart. Perfection is a lifelong process that occurs while we faithfully walk with Jesus. The Lord will use our obedience, but he also will use our disobedience to perfect us. I couldn't help on Wednesday night, if you were here with us, as we study the book of Numbers, I couldn't help but wonder, what if the children of Israel wouldn't have complained? What if they didn't look back? What if they obeyed instead of disobeyed? We're told that their 40-year journey out of Egypt and into the promised land was only supposed to take 12 to 14 days. What if they didn't complain? Would it have only taken two weeks? What if they didn't look back and long for what they used to have? What if they were patient in the process? That's when it hit me. How many times have I missed out on the promises of God because of my disobedience? How many times have I delayed his blessing because of my complaining? Or prolonged the wandering because I looked back? The Lord is in the business of perfecting us, ladies. And he will do what is ever necessary to complete the work that he began. He will finish it. Whether it takes 40 years or 14 days, he will do what is necessary in our lives to complete that work which he began. And don't you love that the Lord is so patient with us when we're so impatient with him? He knows how long it will take for us to get it, to learn the lesson to not go back, to not look back, to not complain, to not disobey. He's so patient and long-suffering with us. He doesn't leave us and say, you should have learned the lesson in two weeks and you didn't, so good luck. He keeps going as long as it takes. He doesn't leave us. But the lesson for us here is that we really don't, we wanna learn it in two weeks I mean, two days, two hours. <laughs> oh, Lord, don't let it take two years. 
or 40 or whatever. Oh, Lord, help us to learn here and now the lesson that you want us to learn. And that's what we're going to learn today. How is it that we can more quickly learn these lessons? That it won't take us quite so long to learn. We don't want to miss out on the blessings that the Lord has for us. Because there are blessings that we can enter into here on earth. We don't have to wait to get to heaven to enter into those blessings. We can enter in here on earth, but it is entirely up to us. We want to be used by the Lord, don't we, to further his work while we're here? So how do we accomplish that? How do we learn the lesson faster? James begins the book by encouraging his readers to turn their trials into triumphs to turn their defeats into victories. We do this by applying four basic principles that we learn right here in our first half of this uh, chapter. We are to count, we are to know, we are to let, and we are to ask. Count, know, let, and ask. We see this first in verse two, where James says, my brethren, Count it all joy, yes, you read that correctly, joy, when you fall into various trials. Someone once said, outlook determines outcome, and attitude determines action. Outlook determines outcome, and attitude determines action. We're told in the Bible to expect trials, and yet we are somehow completely surprised when we encounter them. We're told again and again, expect them. They will be there, not when. I mean, excuse me, not if, but when. They, they are coming. And then when we encounter them, we're shocked. We're surprised. We're like, oh, what's happening? We need to remember that they are here, that they will be here, that we will encounter them, that that's part of the process. There's two things, though, that we notice in this command. As I just said, the first is it's not a matter of if, but when. When you fall into various trials, not if. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. But what? Be encouraged by that, right? Because Jesus has overcome the world. And in Acts 14, 22, we're told we must, Not we might or we may, but we must through much, not some or little, tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. This is a guarantee. This is a promise and one that is not highlighted in many of our Bibles, right? (laughs) Because we are God's scattered people and not God's sheltered people, we are to expect that we can experience trials and tribulations in this life. We as believers are constantly being opposed by the world, our very own flesh, and the devil. And Peter warned the church in 1 Peter 4.12 saying this, Beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though something strange has happened to you. We are not to think it strange when a trial, nonetheless a fiery one, a hot one, comes our way. A difficult one comes our way. 
The second thing we notice in this verse, after noticing that it's not if, but when, is that we are commanded to have joy in the midst of the trial. Not after it, when it's long gone, but right in the midst of it. Joy is not elation in the middle of it. It is acceptance in the middle of it. It's looking to Jesus and then to others and then ourself last. If we would just continue to remind ourselves the definition of joy, the one we learned when we were little, Jesus, others, and yourself last, we would be able to grasp the trial. We would embrace it. We would even have that joy in it. Because think about it for a moment. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus during the trial, and then we even step outside of ourself and serve other people during the trial, we gain this most amazing perspective. Our focus is on the Lord, And then on what we can do for other people in the midst of it, how we can minister to other people in the middle of our own trial, how we can serve other people. And then somehow the trial almost grows strangely dim because we're fixed on Jesus, we're serving other people, and then our trial is really being used for good. That is how we have joy in the midst. When we put ourselves last and Jesus first and others in the middle, we are able to experience joy in the midst. We have counted our trials as joy. We then come to the second principle in turning our trials into triumphs. And that is to know. After we count, we know. Verse 3 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something, and what it produces is patience. We see again and again in the Bible that true godly faith is always tested. Abraham's faith, you recall, was tested over and over again to increase it. God will always test us to bring about the best within us. But Satan tempts us during that to try to bring out what? The worst in us. It's through the testing of our faith that we prove that we are truly born-again believers, that we are what we say we are, like a test that one would take in school to see how well you understand concepts that you've learned or to see if you really paid attention in class. The same is true with us as believers. Did you pay attention to what you learned? Are you really learning what you think you've learned? Have you retained that? A test proves that we've retained and understand and grasp those concepts, right? And that is what the Lord allows us to go through as well. Testing always works in our favor, working for us and never against us. Peter encourages us in 1 Peter 1, 7, saying that the trial of your faith, which is more precious than gold. The trials, the testings of our faith are 
related to here as gold. Trials mature us. They are what build us. They build perseverance in our lives. And we know that the scripture tells us that perseverance builds character. And then character builds hope. And hope is the expectation of coming good. In the trial, we are to get to the end and see and have hope and know that there is coming good here on earth and in heaven. Trials mature us, they build us, they strengthen us, and they give us hope in the end. Next, after we are to count and we are to know, then we are to let. <laughs> let go and let God have his way, basically. It says, but less, verse 4 tells us, let patience have its perfect work that you may be, again, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This word perfect is here again and again and again. I think the Lord is trying to tell us something, that he wants to complete this work, that he wants to make us complete and as perfect as we can be here on earth before we get to heaven. The Lord cannot build our character without our cooperation. We have to be willing. We have to cooperate with what the Lord is trying to do. We can go through tests and tests and tests and tests and be unwilling to really cooperate and to learn from it. We want to pass the test, don't we? And not have to go through it again. But that requires our cooperation. We can resist it or we can submit to it. It's really up to us. If we resist the Lord, he will have to chasten us until we submit. He's not just going to leave us if we fail the test. He's going to continue and test us again and again until we pass the test. But better that we submit the first time and we pass the test rather than having to go through it multiple times, right? I mean, which of us hasn't been like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry I didn't pass. Please let me pass the test this time. If we submit, he will work in our lives sooner and more quickly than if we fail. God is not satisfied with partial work. He wants a complete work, a work of perfection, and that is what he's shooting for in our lives. He will continue, we're told in scripture, the work that he has begun, and he will not take no for an answer. He will continue. He will pursue. He is relentless. And I love that about our Lord. He's not going to leave us or forsake us, right? We know that's a promise in scripture. He will continue to run after us and he will chasten us until we submit to him. His goal for us, ladies, is maturity and he will do whatever it takes to get us there. Some believers try and shelter themselves from trials, uh, but they will find that they will never come to full maturity if they are constantly running from God. It's the trials in our lives that give us those major growth spurts as Christians. It's often the trials that build our character in our lives, and character is what helps us to serve the Lord effectively as believers. We must uh, allow the Lord to work first in us before he can work through us. He works salvation for us. He works sanctification in us and service through us. He's with us, in us, and works through us. 
It took God 25 years of working in Abraham before Abraham received the promised son, 13 years working through Joseph, many, many tests in Joseph's life before he prepared him for the throne, 80 years for Moses, 25 years for David. Why are we surprised, right? (laughs) These are all men of God that the Lord used. And we're surprised why it takes us so long. 80 years, 13 years, 25 years. It is a process, ladies. And we have to be patient with this process that we're going through. God cannot work in us without our consent. There must be a surrendered will. If we are mature believers, we will accept the will of God and not argue with it trusting that he knows what is best for us, what is best for our family as well. However, if we try to go through trials unsurrendered, we will end up more like Jonah, right? We know that Jonah, in the end, he ran from God's will. God still chastened him, got him there, and then we see that he's sitting pouting like a child there under a tree. You know, we, we, can, we can run, but God's going to chasten us, but really, we can be surrendered or unsurrendered. He's going to do it. It's really up to us if we choose to surrender or unsurrender to him, or not surrender, I should say. The, the Lord uses trials to wean us away from childish things. But if we don't surrender, we will end up more immature than we started, sort of like the picture of Jonah. The goal for the Lord is complete maturity. Therefore, we must surrender to the Lord in the trial if we want to accomplish this. In verses 9 through 11, James applies this principle to two different types of Christians. We're kind of jumping down, then we'll come back. The poor and the rich. Apparently, money and social status were a problem back then, too, just as they are now. Let's look to verse 9. Verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother glorify in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. It's Flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. The point here is that whether you are poor or rich, our material resources cannot take us through the testing of life. Rather, it is our spiritual resources that do the job. The fourth and final principle here is ask, and this is found in verse 5. James says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not the man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." It appears as though the people who received this letter were having a difficult time with praying. When we're in the thick of a trial, oftentimes 
it's hard to pray. We don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. We're not sure how to intervene or even what words to utter. So James tells us here that we should be praying for one particular thing, and that is wisdom. Someone has said, knowledge is the ability to take things apart, while wisdom is the ability to put them back together. I like that. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. So why is it that we need wisdom when we're going through a trial? Why not pray for strength or grace or deliverance from the trial? Why pray for wisdom? It is wisdom that is able to help us to make sense of the trial. See, God doesn't want to deliver us from the trial. He wants us to what? Learn the lesson in the trial because we're being te- it's a test. He wants us to learn the lesson. Taking us out of the trial right away might not help us at all because we might not learn that lesson. But having wisdom in the trial helps us to know what the trial is for. Wisdom gives us understanding in the trial. And if we can understand the purpose, we are much more willing to endure the trial, right? If we don't have wisdom, we will begin to doubt, just like James says. We'll be tossed by the waves of the storm. Paul said something similar in Ephesians 4.14. He encouraged us that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with everyone of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. We're not to be tossed around. We're to pray for wisdom in the middle so that we know how to rightly use this. Verse 8 reminds us that we, uh, that We are not to be like a double-minded man or woman who, who is unstable. If we're being tossed around, there is no stability. But what wisdom does in the middle of the trial is it creates stability in the middle of it. Because we know. When we know there's a purpose to something, isn't it a little easier to go through it? Okay, I know there's a point to this. Here's a purpose to it. I'm going to make it through it. But when we don't know in the middle, we are just tossed around and we feel that we're, um, you know, we're just, we're completely unstable. We're shaken up. We know that we cannot love God and we cannot love man. We have to choose. Instability is like an unfaithful husband or wife, wanting both but can't having both. Instability and immaturity go hand in hand. But outlook always determines outcome, as we said. If you are joyful going into a trial, you'll be joyful coming out of a trial. If you're strong going in, you'll be stronger coming out. If you're surrendered going in, you'll be surrendered coming out. If you're faithful going in, you'll be faithful coming out. And if you endure, going in, verse 12 tells us, we'll be rewarded, coming out. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for he has been approved. He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
We've talked about this many times before, but it's always good to be reminded there are crowns awaiting us <laughs> in heaven. We it get to experience joy here on earth. We get to serve the Lord here on earth. But when we get to heaven, there are crowns awaiting us. There's four that are available to us as women. And here we see one of them, the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Those who endure, those who hang on, those who do not give up. You have a crown awaiting you in heaven. Amen. Isn't that encouraging today? Four crowns that we're able to receive at the Bema seat for believers. And one of them is this. If you are patient and you endure to the end, loving the Lord, you will receive a crown, the crown of life. To endure means to remain. The Lord doesn't help us by removing us from the trial. Rather, he sustains us so that we, we, we will remain in it so that the trial will make us more like him. We're to remain in the trial until we learn the lesson in the trial. And then when we come out of the trial, we are matured, we're stronger, we've endured, we're more like him. We've gained maturity and the character of Jesus Christ. The goal in the trial is maturity. If we could keep our eyes set on that and know that the goal is us, it's not anybody else. I mean, God is working in our lives and marriages and families and other people, but the goal is us. The goal in the trial is maturity in us. Maturity through the trials. And the reward for us, if we stay in it and learn from it, is a crown. We are to let the trial have its way in us. And as a result, we grow in character, maturity, and we even bring glory to the Lord in it. But on the flip side, Satan also wants to work in our trials. Did you know that? He tries to tear us down, to discourage us. He desires to rob us to steal our blessing, to snatch our reward. He even tempts us. Now, many people confuse tests and temptations, and the difference between the two is one is from the Lord and one is not from the Lord. Tests are from the Lord. Temptations are from the devil, but trials are from both. Trials are tests and temptations. But tests are from the Lord, and temptations are from the devil. James continues now in verse 13, saying, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. God is too holy and too loving to tempt people. It is the devil 
who is behind all temptation. The devil is tricky. He's sly. He's sneaky. He seeks to allure us, to draw us away, and to tempt us with bait, much like a fish would take bait on a hook. Just as no animal would deliberately step into a trap and no fish would deliberately take a hook without any bait on it, we too won't take the bait unless the trap or the hook is hidden. And the devil is very good about hiding these traps. Temptation always carries with it some bait that is appealing to our natural desires. God promises, though, to always make a way of escape for us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that no temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We are tempted. We are tested. But with the temptation from the devil, the Lord always, every single time, provides a way of escape. Whether we take it or not is entirely up to us. Which of us hasn't been tempted and failed, and yet afterwards, hindsight is twenty twenty. we look back and go, oh man, yes, I saw that stop sign, I ran right through it. I just plowed it down, didn't even think twice about it. I heard that still small voice trying to tell me to stop or to take the other road, and I didn't do it. I believe many lessons in the temptation are when we look back and we failed, we look back and we can see, okay, Lord, I see that there was a lesson in that as well for me. Help me never to run through your stop signs. Help me always to stop when your spirit uh, prompts me. It's that, it is that whisper, gals. It's the whisper. It's not the Lord saying, stop yelling, screaming. It is not a megaphone. It's not a microphone. It's a whisper phone. <laughs> it's a whisper. It is just so little. And if we are not in tune to his still small voice and our spiritual antennas have grown dull, we will miss it. That is why it is so important to stay sharp, to sharpen our sword, to be in the word, to be in prayer, to learn, to be accustomed, to hear, and we'll talk about in a moment, his still, small whisper, because we will run right through it and we will miss it every single time. Here in these verses, James describes for us the four-step process of sin, and it is not pretty. Sin begins with a desire, James tells us. When we are tempted, then we are drawn away by our own desires, our own lusts, and even our own emotions, which then lead us to the next step, deception. We are enticed or persuaded to take the bait 
by tempting, not our emotions now, now it moves from our emotions to intellect. To it, we are tempted by our intellect, which then leads to a desire that is act upon in our will. The emotions are touched, the intellect is enlightened, and then the will is disobeyed, which brings forth the fourth and final, the most grieving, of course, death. Immediate spiritual separation from God, just like Adam and Eve. One act. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. We're never told that it was Eve that separated God from man. It was Adam's act, we read in Scripture. Eve was deceived, and yet Adam sinned with eyes wide open. He knew. He was not deceived. And right then, Adam and Eve were immediately separated from God's presence. Spiritual death separates us from God. One of the devil's lies is that the Lord is holding out on us that he really doesn't want the best for us, that he really doesn't love us, that he doesn't care for us. All lies from the devil. When Satan came to Eve to feed her this very lie, saying, if God really loved you, he would let you eat from any tree in the garden, right, Eve? (laughs) He made it appear as though God was withholding something good from her. In actuality, God was withholding. He was protecting her from something bad, something devastating. But she was deceived by the twisted words of the devil, and she took the bait. Jesus also, we read in Scripture, was tempted by the devil, and the devil raised the question to Jesus, about hunger, saying, if your father really loves you, then why are you hungry? Why has he not fed you? Trying to say that God did not care about his very own son. When the devil comes at us with these lies and others, we need to recognize them as what they are, lies from the pit of hell. God does love you. He does care for you. He does have your best interest in mind. He is protecting you. We come back with a lie with the truth found in the word of God. We need to do what Jesus did as we respond to the word of God. But we cannot respond with the word of God unless we know the word of God. We have to keep our sword sharp. If it's dull, we're doomed, ladies. It has to be sharp. It is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, we're told. The truth of the word of God, it quenches, ladies, any doubts of God's love and goodness. Those fiery darts, it quenches them. It stops them. It repels them just as water would be repelled from something that is water repellent, you know, it just bounces right off. The word of God is our shield of faith. God's goodness 
is our water repellent. It is a barrier against yielding to the temptations of the devil. Once we start to doubt God's word, his goodness, we're in danger. We cannot doubt, ladies, because then we are so ripe for taking the bait. That's why James had to write verses 17 and 18. Look with me. It says, every good and perfect, here's the word again, gift, is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. Amen? Satan never gives good gifts. He never gives them, let alone good ones. Uh, He gives bad things. The next time you're tempted, try this. Try meditating on God's goodness. Everything that he, that's good, that's, that he's done in your life, that he's doing in your life, meditate on the word of God, the goodness of God. Start saying all the good characteristics of God. That will help to cause the enemy to flee from you. If you think you can't live without something... This is just a shopper's trick, you know. (laughs) Stop and pray for a moment and ask the Lord, do I really need this or that? And then, if you're not sure, walk away. This is what I say. If I'm supposed to have it, it'll be there tomorrow or whenever I come back. (laughs) And sure enough, what, it's not there. And I'll be like, okay, Lord, (laughs) I wasn't supposed to have that, right? So uh, that's a good, that's good. If you're ever not sure or you're feeling like, um, whenever you feel you can't live without something, that's never good, right? Because there's a whole lot we can live without, right? So if you ever feel like I have to have it, walk away from it. You don't have to have it. James continues in verse 19 by exhorting us in three areas of Christian maturity, especially during a trial. He says these things. And make sure they're highlighted in your Bible. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. We as believers who love the Lord should be familiar with his voice. Jesus said in John 18, 37, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Do you listen to the voice of Jesus? Are you even familiar with his voice? We talked about this just a moment ago. It is not a megaphone. It is not a microphone. It is a whisper phone. (laughs) It is just a whisper. And we can run right through the whisper unless we're attentive to it, in tune to it. I know my husband's voice. Uh, My boys obviously are men now, and sometimes a few of them have a similar voice as him. Like they'll walk in and I'll be upstairs and they'll be like, ooh, who is that? Uh, But um, I do know my husband's voice. It takes me just a moment. I mean, I know all my kids' voices. But nevertheless, do you know Jesus' voice? Are you in tune to his voice? Do you know it? The more time we spend with somebody, 
the more we get to know their voice, right? We don't even have to be in the same room, right? I mean, you can be on the phone. Somebody could say hello. You know by the tone. You know who it is. They don't need to say, hello, this is this person. We know who it is, right? Likewise, the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we get to know his voice. We recognize him. We know when he's calling on the phone. We know when it's him, when he's trying to get our attention. James exhorts us to be slow to speak and to be quick to listen. This is a lesson that we all constantly need, don't we? On a daily basis, I would say, (laughs) this is a good one to have on your fridge, isn't it? Uh, We were given two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? I mean, which of us hasn't heard that? Because we're supposed to listen twice as much as we're supposed to what? Speak. (laughs) We know that. We need to listen. It's almost like we have two mouths up here and one ear. (laughs) Most of us speak twice as much as we listen. We would be good to train ourselves to listen more than we speak, right? To really learn to listen. Which of us doesn't have somebody in our lives that we look up to? For me, most of my mentors, those older godly women that I look up to, they don't say very much. They listen very well, but they don't say very much. But what they do say, it's powerful. Like you want to write it down, it's so powerful. So that tells me, praise God, the older I get, hopefully the more I listen and the less I speak. I, say, I talk a lot. I have a lot of words to say. Can you tell? But what I want to do, my heart, is to listen twice as much as I speak. That's my desire. Oh, Lord, help me. That is my desire. We are to listen to the Lord and to others. It is, this is good for us to practice self-control, isn't it? When we find us wanting to blurt something, want to interrupt somebody, just say, I'm practicing self-control. I want to listen twice as much as I feel like I have to speak. We are to be quick to listen. We are to be slow to speak. If we are careful to speak and quick to listen, we should have no problem with the next exhortation, right? We should be slow to get angry. Do you have a quick temper? Are you quick to respond? If so, ask the Lord to help you in this area of self-control. You will find that the more you're in the word of God, the more self-control you will naturally have. It is a natural byproduct of being in the word. And we know it is a fruit of the spirit. And I honestly and sincerely believe it's on the end for a reason. (laughs) Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Oh yeah, that one is there too. And self-control. On the end, love, self-control, they hold all the other ones together. They are the bookends. Ask the Lord for that bookend, the one on the very end, you know, the one that's hard. Ask him for that. Which also helps us with verse 20. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is not speaking here of being short-tempered, but instead of allowing those things in our lives that we allow to go unaddressed, build and build 
and build and build and build until there is aggression and anger and just a really mean spirit that comes out. When things go unaddressed or uncommunicated in our lives with other people, they can build. And I don't know if you're a stuffer or a venter. I don't know. Um, I don't stuff very easily. I like to communicate. I want to get things right. Let's work this out, um, which I believe is healthy and it's biblical. We should. There are some times that you have to wait on things just, you know, till something blows over. But other than that, the Bible encourages not to let the sun go down in our wrath or anger for this very reason. Because when things build, what happens? There's a blow up. There's aggression. There's anger. And we are not to let that happen um, because uh, it's not healthy. It's not good. It's not biblical to hold grudges and to hold unforgiveness. The remedy for this is to get things right as soon as possible, to not let the sun go down in your anger, to handle things in a godly way, not to hold grudges, to give forgiveness. The enemy will often take advantage of us when we do not communicate with other people. Communication is key. If you cannot share with anyone else, share with the Lord. He sees, he knows He knows the situation. Go to him again and again and again until you hear from him. And go to the word, which is not only our sword to fight with, but it is our water that washes us clean. And it's also, we're told here, a seed to plant with. Uh, Verse 21 says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Here, James pictures a human heart as a garden. If left to itself, it produces weeds, those things, those unrighteousness, those filthy things. But the word of God is able to come and to pull those weeds out and to replace them with fruit. When we make the choice to lay aside our hard hearts or our hurt feelings and instead receive the word of God, it will come into our lives be planted and take root and bear forth fruit. And that fruit is, is a fruit of righteousness instead of the weeds of filthiness. It's all about, ladies, how we receive it. Here James exhorts us to receive the word with one particular word, meekness. And we know that meekness is not weakness, but weak, meekness is strength under control. Here again, control, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Meekness is strength under control. It isn't enough to just hear the Word of God, ladies. We must do the Word of God. In his closing verses, James packs um, a big punch here at the end as he encourages us to practice the Word and to share it. Verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if a man is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. 
But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. You're blessed if you're a doer. Hearing the word isn't where the blessing is received. It is in doing the word. We can sit here and you can hear all that is being said right now. And you will not receive the blessing in it unless you put it into practice. Unless you put feet to your faith. Unless you do what it is that we're learning here today. We are to be a doer of the word. Here James likens the word of God to a mirror. There are only three places in the Bible that it speaks of, excuse me, um, yes, in the whole Bible, I believe, that it speaks of the word of God being a mirror. Uh, one is Exodus 38, 8. You can write it down. I, um, I didn't get it up there. Sorry, gals. Um, the other is 2 Corinthians 2, 18. So that's Exodus 38, 8, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and here in James 1, 23 through 25. If you put all three of these together, though, it um, creates this beautiful ministry shown in the Word of God. The Word of God is, as Exodus 38, 8 tells us, restoration. 2 Corinthians 3, 13 tells us transformation. And then right here in James 1, 23 through 25, examination. Restoration, transformation, and examination all occur by looking at the mirror of the word of God. The word of God is these three things. These are the ministries of the mirror of the word of God, restoration, transformation, and examination. As mentioned in these verses before, the main purpose of a mirror is what? To see right? To see, to see ourselves. So James says here that the word of God is our mirror, which looks deep into our hearts and examines what's in there. But James mentions several mistakes that people make as they look into the mirror of the word of God. These are the three mistakes right here found in our scripture. The first is that they only glance at it, he says. They don't really take time to study it. You just glance at it. The next mistake is you forget what you saw or you forget what you read. How many of us are guilty of that? Because you don't take the time to let the word of God sink in. Remember what we've taught you. Read it, write it, share it, and live it. If we do those three things, the word of God will sink deep. We won't just glance at it. We won't forget what we saw or read because we are reading it. We're writing it down. We are now repeating it to somebody else. And then we're being a doer of the word, which is the next one. Uh, The next mistake is they don't obey what they read. They may have read it and you could even share it with somebody else. We can go that far. So we've retained it. We've read it. We've retained it because we shared it. But then we make a mistake of not making the step. The third step is living it. Then we actually obey the word of God. We must be doers of the word, not just hearers only. 
Here, James repeats this again and again so that we know that this is a mistake that people make all the time. And we don't want to be the ones who make that same mistake. We are to read the word of God. We are to let it sink in, as I said. We are to write it down. We are to share it or to repeat it with others. And then we take it a step further and we are to live that life. We are not to be hypocrites telling people one thing and yet living something totally different or not living it at all. We are to be doers of the word of God. Warren Wiersbe said, too many Christians mark their Bibles, but their Bibles never mark them. (gasps) Ouch, right? Wow. Too many Christians mark their Bibles, but their Bible never marks them. Wow. When we are a doer of the word, we are marked. We are marked believers. We want the word of God to mark us, amen, to impact our lives so we can go out and impact the lives of other people. Well, James ends this chapter with one final exhortation on speech, saying in verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The word translated religion means the outward practice or service of God. It is only used five times in the New Testament, and it's translated each time with the word worshiping. So it's not like we would see religion because we say we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it means worshiping. Pure and undefiled worship of God has nothing to do with ceremonies and rituals and special days. It has everything to do with practicing God's word and sharing it with others through our speech, our service, and our separation from the world. These three things that James points out here. What we say, what we do, and how we live. We want to be doers of the word and not hearers only, for this is the way in which we are not deceived by the enemy. The world is looking to conform us into its image, but Jesus wants to transform us into his image. We have a choice. Are we going to conform or are we going to be transformed? We are in one of the two places. We're either going to be conformers, conforming to the world's ways, or we're going to transform into Jesus Christ as we take in the word of God. We see repeated here again and again certain words. We know that the word of God is what perfects us. And so if there's anything that you take away from this, it's that we are to be again and again in the word of God, that we are not just to be hearers only, but we are to do the word of God that it is possible to sit in church, to sit in Bible study, and still to do your Bible study, to read the word of God. It is possible to do all those things and still not to be a doer, 
to just be a hearer. And ladies, oh, if I could plead with you and exhort you in any way, it is to take it a step further. Be a doer of the word. Visit the widows, visit the orphans, serve the Lord with your gifts. We all have our gifts and we are to use our gifts. We are to receive from the word, but we're also to do, to do the word. And the best way we can do the word is by live the word and serve the Lord in doing so. So I would encourage you ladies today to not just mark your Bible, but let your Bible mark you and make a lasting impression upon your heart. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do love you and praise you, God, for your word that is sharp and it's powerful, God. And we do thank you for your strong words of exhortation today, God. We so want the Bible to mark us and to live through us, God. We want to be your hands and your feet, God. Would you do that in us today, God? We do pray that your word has fallen upon hearts that are uh, ready, soil that is ready for the implanted word of God to take root and to bear much fruit, God. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' precious name, amen.